Hello and welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host Shane Lee. Today on the show, Zali Stegel, an Australian politician, lawyer and former Olympic athlete, now serving as Member of Parliament for the Division of Warringah. She's Australia's most successful alpine skier, winning our first ever individual bronze medal in 1998 and a World Cup gold in 1999. She has an order of Australia and is a mother of two. And Richard Toms, a former Australian rugby union player, playing five tests for the Wallabies, 76 appearances for the Waratahs, and was the first professional at Gloucester Rugby. After retirement from professional football, he was playing social soccer on the Northern Beaches and broke his neck in an innocuous tackle. He has subsequently set up the Guns Out Spinal Foundation, raising money for the research of spasticity. He's also a father of three. Let's get started. Welcome to Lunch with Lee. I'm your host, Shane Lee. Today on the show, Zali Stegel, an Australian politician, lawyer and former Olympic athlete, and Richard Toms, a former Australian rugby union player. So let's get started, guys. So firstly, welcome to Lunch with Lee. Um, Now, I want to start with you, Zali, because we know Tomsey played rugby union, but your grandfather, Jack. He did. I have a strong family tradition in rugby. Yeah, he played 10, ten tests for the Wallabies. Yeah, yeah. And he, well, he went across, he played rugby union, and then he played league as well. He was of that generation where he took, you know, a six-month tour to go to play in South Africa. Yeah. Um, and obviously then in his early 20s, he got, got married and became a lawyer and had to give it away because he <laughs> had to get on to sort of, you know, real life. Um, but obviously always a very strong tradition. And Actually, my dad, Jack, as well, um, played uh, rugby as well, but he played at, at premier, state premiership level. He played for Norse, and then he finished off in Manly. And and, and your brother, Zeke's an uh, Olympian as well, snowboarder. Well, he's a snowboarder. When he was at school, they, they asked him to come and play rugby. They assumed he would want to come and be maybe a front row or something, and um, Zeke was not a contact sport kind of person, so he liked the snowboarding. Uh, but, yeah, we it was an incredible moment. We were both at the Olympics in 1998 in Nagano. It was the first time snowboarding was an Olympic sport and so for my parents it was a pretty amazing family moment to have both your kids competing and yeah very cool. And um, Tom, so you've got three girls um, your ex-wife Carissa she was played netball for Australia for 12 years has the sporting gene kicked on with the girls? Mate the two of them are really into their sport really love their netball and really keen on it but uh, yep. I got the middle one she's gone totally the other way. Right. She just came home and said you know uh, she is quite good at athletically like yep she likes sport but athletically she's not as um do they have the, the killer instinct <laughs> <laughs> um do they have the killer instinct no not like not like a mother let's say that the mother actually she could she could knock everything over if she wanted to knock something over but um not the kids but they they they're into their sport yeah and Zali, i find it really interesting now um you got an amazing career from from uh, an olympic athlete to becoming a lawyer and now in politics now i know as a sportsman myself you have to be sort of very sort of individually focused inward focused almost politics that's totally the opposite surely I like a challenge. <laughs> you know, look, well, here we are. We're sitting in Manly, you know, the international renowned ski resort that Manly is, of course. <laughs> yes. um, so, look, it, it didn't, um, I guess, you know, scare me off from aiming to, you know, 
be on the Olympic stage and world world championships in skiing. So for me, it's always been about, you know, I guess setting a goal, but also sort of acknowledging what, what's going to motivate me. What, what do I want to sort of achieve and do? What can be done? Um, and, and I guess after having, you know, I've been incredibly lucky to have a a successful sporting career and then moving on to law uh, being a barrister and I got the chance to be like in Pyeongchang as an arbitrator for the uh, International Sport of uh, Court of Arbitration for sport um, you know ruling against the Russians from being allowed to compete at the Olympics you do like a challenge uh, that was pretty <laughs> cool um, but look so I felt that with, with obviously that background in law and sport I certainly had the skills to handle the public's life side of being a politician but also it is adversarial in nature. You know, Parliament is fairly uh, adversarial, no different to the courtroom. Um, But it is also collaborative. You have to find solutions. You actually have to listen to your community. You're you're there to represent your community. So in many ways, no different to representing your country in sport. Um, What what did you find most terrifying? Was it it ploughing down a a mountain at at speed that you could get seriously injured? Um, being in a court of law or, or being a politician, what, what do you find most scary? <laughs> Look, there's been a few moments, you know, that fight or flight reflex where you really have to sort of take a deep breath and think about it. Um, yeah, in skiing, I never had it so much. I think in skiing, in sport, you have it's a fear of failure where you, you want it so bad and you have to try and... You turn your mind off to let yourself perform the way you know you've trained it and you can do it. You feel, you feel you're more in control, you know. Yeah. You know, you've got your skills and you can do what you can do, but you don't have people throwing left barbs at Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Tr- you trust your preparation. You know, you have a game plan on race day and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but on the whole, you know, you know how to approach it. Court was a little bit like that. Your preparation, you know, your case, your whatever, your cross-examination of your witnesses, you prepare it in advance and you prepare your argument. You never quite know what left-field question you're going to get from the judge or what could come at you. Parliament is, is, is a really interesting mix of the two in that you are um, on a field, you know, you are on a stage having to perform the way in a very similar way but at the same time really important to be listening to what's coming at you from government from opposition trying to be really strategic about where the opportunities are to move the dial on legislation or on issues and obviously always touching back with with the community so scary look probably the most daunting thing was uh the debate i did in the 2019 election with tony you know it was the most there was one debate at queenscliff surf club that was quite Surreal. Was he in his speedos? He wasn't in his speedos. <laughs> Thank goodness. But we did have a lot of hype, and there's a lot of people, and it was it was. I felt like I was going into a back a boxing game, you know, like a wow. boxing ring. There yeah. was crowds, and there were demonstrators, and it was just, it was pretty intense. Your, your court experience would have helped there, though. Yeah, yeah. Look, because I mean, he's got a lot of political experience mm. over you, so. Imagined big event experience as well would mm. be how I'd describe it. You know, mm. knowing when you know when you're fronting up to a test, or um, for me, fronting up to the Olympics or the World Champs, sure. and you, you know, I had 50 seconds to prove myself to justify the last four years worth of training. So the pressure is intense. That debate was similar. You know, the whole campaign, you know, was live televised. So if I got it wrong, sure. you know, yeah. it's the the price is high. Um, and, and so you and you know you have two minutes and you know whatever the opening statement was and the questions to 
to make your point to be to be clear and <laughs> you, you must be so proud because uh, the, the seat of Warringah it's been a blue ribbon seat since I think 922 um, and you're the first forever. to forever yeah dislodge them um, that must give you a real warm feeling in your heart <laughs> um, but uh, look I think look with respect Tony had lost touch with the community yeah. with the beliefs with yeah, you know the, the the standards and, and what the expectations so I don't know that I've completely shifted the seat or it's more about being more in tune with where where people in Warringah really want us to be on on issues. You know, we're we're a really competitive bunch. You know, uh, Warringah is <laughs> has a strong sporting history. It does. We want to win and we want to be at the forefront of things. And when it comes to technology and a lot of issues. I think maybe Tony was holding on to the past and I'm a bit more keen to be in the competitive winning future. Well said. Okay, we'll take a little break here now and uh, we're at Garfish here um, on the Esplanade in Manly. It's a beautiful little fish cafe. Um, I can never go past the fish pie here. It is unbelievable. So I'll be having one of those, probably with a little Chardonnay and of course no Brian's Beer, one of our great sponsors. Little chips on the side and the oysters here are fantastic too, so I might get stuck into those. John O'Brien is a legend of Australia's beer industry. In 2003, he dreamed of producing a great-tasting beer that could be enjoyed by everyone, free from the ill effects of mass-produced wheat and barley. John began a brewing journey blending unique aromas and flavours offered by ancient grains such as sorghum and millet. He perfected recipes over time which have led to 40 local and international awards, including three gold medals at the Australian International Beer Awards, a gold medal at the Indies and a silver medal at the Beer World Cup. Proudly 100% Aussie-owned, made in Ballarat, O'Brien Beer is Australia's most awarded gluten-free beer and widely available around Australia through major retailers and online at rebellionbrewing.com.au. O'Brien Beer, the beer that loves your back. Now, there's nothing like a healthy head of hair. Shane, when I first met you, those blonde flowing locks, well, they had a life of their own. Yes, Timmy. As they say, look after your hair and everything else will take care of itself. Now, I've got something for you too, Timmy, even with that silver fox look. It's called Main Hair Care. Oh, Main Hair Care. I know it. I absolutely love it. Yes, mate. Specialised men's hair care, targeting scalp conditions to stimulate scalp and over time improve growth. Oh, it's a fantastic product. It really is. I also note that it's all Australian, fully organic ingredients, Shane. Yep. Not only will you look good, but the scent is just wonderful. Main Hair Care. I'm going to get it on today. And that's spelled M-A-N-E, mainhaircare.com. Tom, you played in an era of, of rugby union in this country in the, in the 90s, which was a, a real golden period. Um, talk me through some, some of your, your memories of those, those times and, and the guys you played with and, and how did you feel when you first ran out wearing the Wallabies jersey? Because you, you were born in New Zealand. No, I was. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Shane. <laughs> I, I try to sort of keep that under the wraps, but uh, it's out there now. Um, Look, it was a really successful period, and, and don't worry, we went, we came through. I, I was first selected in the Wallabies in '88, <clears throat> which is my first tour of the UK, and we weren't successful. We we sort of really battled, and we were beaten by England. We were beaten in our provincial matches and everything right, like that. Okay. And then um, by the time we came round to 1991, well, we won the World Cup that year, and um, I don't think we went in there as favourites. But as a squad, we, we were very committed and we knew what we wanted to do. And Bob Dwyer had set that up 
probably 12 months earlier, he'd sort of phoned around some of the key guys. I wasn't one of those guys that got a phone call, but phoned them around, phoned them up 12 months ahead of the, the World Cup on the day of the final and said, you know, in a year's time, we're going to be World Cup champions. And that was to your David Campeses, your yeah, sure. Far Jones, Liners and things like that. They got those phone calls and that that core of people set set the goal for for the 91 World Cup and, um, and, and a few of the players came out of the woodworks. Timmy Horan really... You know, being his understudy, I sort of uh, I was vying for his spot. And during the pool games, to be honest, the spot was open. But Bob had such faith in him and Jason that he wanted to have them as the centres. And come World Cup final day, Tim was the best player in the field that day. And we won it, right? And that continued on through the 90s. And it was a great era to be... You know, um, involved in the in the Australian setup, probably Australian sport in general, really, because a lot of money was going into the Australian sport in lead up to the Olympics, also in 2000. So, you know, through that period, uh, I got got my test matches and going out. Obviously, my first test was against Scotland, and coincidentally, that day, um, my old school, the Armidale School, were down there from down from the country, and they had 200 players or students out there watching the game and it happened to be my test match to boo and uh, oh it was fantastic they made a lot of noise and after the game I went and saw them after the game it was just magnificent so that, that, that was a good memory um, that was 92 and then you know I was in and out of the test squad and wallabies through I went went on tours to South Africa when we first opened up from apartheid um, Australia, the Wallabies and New Zealand were over there for the first ones and we, we went in, um, went down the mine shafts for a, a cocktail event with Nelson Mandela. Wow. Um, and that was 92 and that was uh, being the first over there sort of venturing into their their prime sport being rugby. They love it. Yeah, they do. And so we were, you know, we were sort of one of the highlights of them, us going over there as well. They told us for the um, three weeks we're over there how much they were going to kick our heads in and Nas was going <laughs> to kick us off the park. That's Nas, Nas Boyka. Yeah. Um, our, they were basically going to beat us. Yeah. You know, that's, that's their take on it. We beat them 26-3 on the second last day of our tour. And then we had to fly out. I couldn't even stay over there and gloat for, you know, for a period. Because it's really interesting. As I said, you're born in New Zealand, so there's a good chance when you're good with the football. You're born in New Zealand, you come to Australia, there's a good chance you're going to playing rugby union or rugby league, right? Now, Zali, you're born Northern Beaches. Up here, Manly Hospital. Manly Hospital. <laughs> and, and, but how does someone from the Northern Beaches end up being an alpine skier? I, I know you lived in France for many years, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, look, my parents were the classic, you know, we talk about sea changes. They wanted a mountain change, right? There you go. They uh, met, lived in Manly. You know, my dad's a local solicitor, played rugby in Manly, but they loved skiing. He actually sneaked out skiing in the middle of his, when he was playing, because he wasn't allowed to go skiing in winter because you would get risk of injury. But my mum sneaked him out. I think he was injured at one point, so he could put his, he had a sore 
ankle and he could put it in a ski boot. So they went skiing and then they were hooked. So they travelled Europe quite a bit when before I was born and then when I was little and ended up um, set, spending a few years in a place called Morzine Navoria. So any cycling fans will know that it's often on the Tour de France um, circuit. And um, I spent my kind of a few years growing up there, uh, you know, growing up like a French kid thinking that skiing is a totally normal sport for a manly girl. So when I came back to Australia, it then was about doing, you know, I was, I had 26 winters in a row, 13 years when I did winter in Europe, winter in Australia and ongoing and ongoing. I, I miss the beach, I've got to sure, say. Oh yeah. Were there many injuries with skiing, doing what you did? No, touch wood. I've been incredibly lucky. I had one hairline fracture and uh, one sprained ankle in 13 years. And that sort of leads me to the next question to you, Tomsey. Um, I mentioned at the start, um, you play a whole rugby career in one of the most physical and particularly in the 90s, there was some, you mentioned those South Africans, they, they would stomp on you. And, and then you finish your, your football career and you're playing a, a social soccer game at the age of 50. I think you were goalkeeping. And it was an innocuous sort of guy just ran into you. And you ended up breaking your neck. Can you remember that time? And and can you remember it actually happening and and how you felt? Yeah, I I can remember the incident uh, in that the fact that I was in I was in a position which I'd been in thousands of times playing rugby, um, fielding a ball which you know much as like I did in rugby. And I reckon it was about a ninety ten. The ball was going to be mine. Striker seemed to have other ideas. Um, I went down for the ball, and my defender was shielding me from the from the striker. Ball went into my arms, and my my defender peeled off. He was pretty close to me, and the striker obviously didn't see I was. You know, they were right on top of me. So he once the defender peeled off, he's tried to hurdle me, and he's thighs come up and hit me in the forehead and knocked me back in, my, in a whiplash. So had I seen the guy, I was in a position where I'd, all I had to do was pull my, you know, like I've done a thousand times again, pull my head to the side and, and just put a tackle on him and go with him. But I didn't see him at all and he's knocked me back. Um, I knew pretty well immediately, yes, that um, my neck was gone. I wasn't moving. My arms were were flailing around. They, I didn't have great control of them. I knew I knew that I knew I was in trouble. Exactly. I had to I had to cool my cool the jets of my team, basically saying, "Look, settle down, stop, just don't move me. Call Triple O and and get an ambulance." Um, and then there's a ride to the ambulance and. Hmm. And because Zal, you campaigned against. Um uh, in your campaign in 2019, there was three sort of key components. It was it was climate change, mental health was a big one. Um, so the question to you, Tom, is the, the mental health, right, that there's, I'm assuming with an injury, injury like you've had, there's the physical, then there's the mental side. How have you, how have you dealt with the mental side? Because that, that would be the hardest thing, I would assume. Mm. I, I think if you fight the fact that where you are, I think you, you can go down a path where you're not going to be good. But I knew straight away. I knew, you know, I was resigned to the fact. Boom! I got a spinal cord injury. I had an idea of what what was going on, what what that may entail. Um, and then I got the, I got good treatment. I got good uh, good advice on dealing with it, like you know, physically dealing yep. with it. Yep. Um, 
I don't know. Mentally, I, I've, I've, I, I haven't really gone down any rabbit holes or anything like that, which is strange. Um, but I, um, I, I, I've, I've got to keep on top of it. Yeah, sure. It, I, my condition fluctuates um, to reasonably good, you know, as best it can be in a chair, but um, to quite poor, and I feel physically really tied up and bound up through spasticity is which is yeah sure which is what my major condition is um not so much i don't have paralysis as such like you'd associate with spinal cord injuries mine is more spasticity and um and if that bounds me up i just i just feel like crap but i know how to to get it better how to how to fix it up so so long as i do that or uh, and I, and I often let it run down so it affects me, but it's only because I can't be bothered getting physical and getting my exercise done. But it's no, my own fault. You're an exceptional man to deal with that. And, and Sally, the question to you around the mental health, what, why did you make that part of your campaign? I'm interested to see, is there something in your background that you're aware of? Was it a, a school incident? What, what, what was, that? was that? Or were you just very aware of what people were going through? No. Look, I mean, it's really interesting to hear Richard talk about, like, how much was your sporting background, the discipline you develop in sport, able to help you cope with the challenge? You know, because I would would imagine discipline and routine, incredibly important part of breaking it down. For me, I was, I think it's become a lot more well-known, you know, the issues that athletes have in moving on to you know, life after sport is incredibly hard. A lot of athletes struggle. It's a very tunnel vision, you know, life from a young age to get to a successful sporting career and then you have to reinvent yourself and find something else you're good at and that's not always very easy. Um, So I was always incredibly lucky that there was plan A and there was plan B and plan B was my studies and I was good at school and I wanted to do law and, you know, I was ambitious on that front. But really aware that mental health is that kind of... We speak about it a lot more now, but for many, many years was really that silent killer, you know, that the rates of suicide are horrendous on Northern Beaches and around men in particular, really, really bad rates. Um, But also that we treat mental health so differently to physical health. You know, you turn up to hospital, you've got a broken leg or something's gushing blood, you get immediate treatment because it's visible, we can recognise it. Mental health, very different and and often slips through the cracks. We don't have enough treatment facilities. Um, You know, beds are often, you know, beds, even though we've got mental psych wards, often the beds will be given to physical ailment because it's visible, it's there and mental patients may not get the same treatment and I think we need to start approaching you know whole body health mental and physical is uh, just as debilitating um, but it, it really needs to be brought out so for me I've got teenagers obviously aware of it from a youth point of view but also I believe in health you know I believe uh, our bodies our minds are our ultimate vehicles right 100%, yeah. and we need to take care of them and, and we have the highest male youth suicide rate in the world and and, and look around where, where we live it's just it's crazy anyway um, Thomas I'm going to ask you mate um, you turned the negative experience that you had there into a positive one you you launched the um, the Guns Out Spinal Foundation tell us about that and the great work you're doing there look Spasticity is a is no longer it's not it's not a glamorous um, physical ailment that that they need to research. It, it was done in, probably in the seventies, 
It's something that affects cerebral palsy patients significantly, um, but it's not the glamorous one of, of fixing paralysis and where people actually get up and walk and things like that. Um, so I'm because it affects me, I figure that I've got to make it glamorous again and um, and highlight highlight the fact that it is still it's still about and still affects so many. I mean, it affects most spinal cord injury people. They've all got some sort of spasticity, um, as well as obviously cerebral palsy. They're, they're full of spasticity, so it's just an ailment which I'd like to, I'd like to see cured and a bit more research go into it because it, it significantly affects me. Can you explain it a little bit, maybe because not everyone would know maybe the what exactly you know the level of impact it yeah. has. So spasticity is basically where your spinal cord's sending out the wrong, wrong uh, signal, and it's telling your muscles to contract all the time. So, you know, um, my 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 arms, my hands, my legs—they're always under under attention uh, due to due to muscle tension, basically um, contraction. And so, you know, I, I don't. I don't really exercise a hell of a lot. I can't exercise quick enough to get my heart rate up to keep body weight off or anything like that. But my body's always burning energy all the time because my body's under tension all the time. So I'm fortunate in that regard. But um, the fact that it really affects me from moving um, with any fluidity, fluidity and um, uh, as well as it's, it's tension, particularly in the back. So it's just, it's, and it's a full body thing for me. And we, we all live in the, um, and Zali is, is in charge of this, but the, the, the division of Warringa, um, I'm in Clontarf and I know you live in Manly. How is it getting around for someone in a wheelchair in this area? Is there anything Zali can help you Mate, with? I'm very fortunate. Yeah. No, I'm very fortunate. I'm very fortunate to live in, I think, Sydney, Australia, really. We're, so we're, we're right ahead of the game, well. We're, we're very well positioned. Any new building, any new development, everything has uh, disabilities in mind. Um, I, I now uh, travel a lot on buses, public transport buses, very, very, very well um, maintained or uh, kitted out for my for, for chairs and whatnot. Um, no, I, I'm, I'm very satisfied. Manly's extremely good. That's why I moved here. It's nice and flat. Yeah, cool. It's got. It's only if you can keep my lift going in my building. That's the only. <laughs> How's your access to the beaches? So one of the things, obviously, we've talked about with local councils has been improving our beach access. Because if you're at a surf club area, there might be a ramp for the for the boats and everything. But it's not always easy. And and you know, also all ages playgrounds. Making sure we're really making it, you know, inclusive. Um, Public infrastructure. Um, look, I, I roll up to Manly to, to South Stain Surf Club. They're exceptional. The lifeguards there are all well. They know me now, and they've they've, they've geared up for me. Um, <laughs> good to hear. And and there's a and there's a beach chair there. I can jump in there, and I go down. They roll roll me down to the beach, and then I get towed around the Shelley Beach <laughs> with a leg rope. A friend wraps their leg rope around their ankle, and I hang on the other end, and I just get towed around there. So. But I, I do find the access very well, and, and the lifeguards are well attuned to it. Um, I must say, if you can do something about wheelchair access to the uh, 
Balpool, that would be very there you good. Go. I mean, it's, it's okay, there you go. There's a challenge for local government. <laughs> it's a beautiful pool there, and it's got so much, so much going for it, but just not really. See, and I, I, only want, I only want bigger rubbish bins. That's all. But that's that's my last request. <laughs> just hold it there, as we're going to take a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, maybe check out a previous one where I spoke to another politician, Gladys Berejiklian, and Todd Greenberg. We spoke about all things cricket, rugby league, and politics. Hey, Natalia, I wanted to ask you um, uh, about, um, obviously, going into a winter sport. Do we have good funding here for, for excellent kids who, who are potentially... Um, skiers or involved in the Winter Olympics? Do we have enough funding in this country? Because I I would assume not. No. It's a pretty tough battle for winter sports. Look, as Richard said, the the glory days of sports funding was pre-2000 Olympics, essentially. Um, That's when there was a lot of funding to really make sure Australia did well on the world stage. Hopefully, with the 2032 Brisbane Olympics, we'll see a revamp of funding to sport in Australia. Um, Winter sports, it's always tough. We are actually, you know, provide we do well on the world stage in a number of sports especially um you know from aerial skiing moguls snowboarding um but we tend to get bunched in as a whole all winter sport program get funded as one compared to all the other sports get individually at individual attention so that is tough um and it's always that battle between you know the payment cycles as well four years two years all of that's always a bit tough but look obviously always advocating for more support i think Sport plays such a big part in even our whole community outlook to health, right? It, it motivates and encourages kids. If you don't support that elite level of sport, you don't create the heroes and the champions that the kids can look up to and then that encourage them to pursue sport. Um, and we know the health benefits from sport are huge. So, you know, whether you're talking mental or, or, or physical health. So it's really important to not think of elite sport as some elitism, you know, nice to have. It actually plays a big part big in society. And, and we're finding now a lot of research into sort of tweens, um, uh, the use of drugs and alcohol sort of it's actually decreased, but depression has actually doubled. And they reckon a lot of the screen time is, is um, producing the same... Um, uh, sort of triggers in your brain that's causing depression. So getting kids out healthy, running them around is a big, big thing and uh, we're all, all support of that. Um, a lot of, um, I'll ask you both this question, I'll ask you first, Tomsey. Um, a, lot, a lot of school parents listen to this podcast um, and if there was a young boy or girl who wanted to go into a professional career in rugby, what advice would you give them? Really skill yourself up on the basics. Uh, that's, the, that's the foundation of any sport is make sure you've got your basic sound pat, you know. Um, the biggest challenge for young people is defence, is actually learning and having confidence to tackle. They love running with the ball. You watch them, they all get the ball and they want to do everything, but not many of them love, you know, you've really got to love the defence. In, in rugby, you know, it's half the game. Um, so really school yourself up on the basics and... Learn, learn to tackle, learn the defensive basics particularly and get disciplined in your fitness and your conditioning. Well said. And Zali, there's a young boy or girl um, in the back of Burke and they said to their parents, I want a pair of skis for Christmas. <laughs> uh, what, advice, what advice would you give them if they want to become a uh, professional um, uh, winter athlete? Yeah, look, a winter athlete or any athlete, to me it's back yourself, believe in yourself. Like it's going to be tough. 
and you know the few moments of you know being on top of the podium are great but there's a lot of hard times in between and the, the road there is long um, but at the end of the day you have to be your own best um, best advocate you have to believe in yourself and push through you know I guess to give you an anecdote when I was 13 I had a, a coach pulled me in and said look you know you're really determined and you try hard but look these other girls are just that little bit more talented than you so you just have to accept they might go further can I tell you that yeah. was like a red rag to a ball um, in terms too. of you know I'll show you so my best advice to kids no matter what the sport is don't let anyone talk down your dream you know back yourself oh, well said well I thank you both for coming on the show we're going to have a nice um, bite to eat here now at Garfish I'm definitely having the fish pie but um, Zal you're doing a wonderful job I think as um, my local member and um, keep up the good work and Tomsy you're always a breath of fresh air mate you've always got a smile on your face and um, you've reached the top in your sport and you've been through some really tough times but you have a, a brilliant outlook on life mate and I really really appreciate both coming on the show my pleasure thanks Shane pleasure thanks, guys. cheers that's it for Lunch With Lee this week. A big thank you goes out to our guests, Zali Stegall and Richard Toms. Thanks to our sponsors, Maine Hair Care and O'Brien Beer. Make sure you hit follow on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And do us a favour, hit five stars. And if you're passionate, leave a review. And come check us out on our socials on Instagram. I'm at Lunch With Lee. Our official Lunch With Lee photography was done by Felicity Kelly. And she can be found on Instagram at Felicity Kelly Portraits. And a big thank you goes to our producer, Dan McHugh. And we'll be back next week chatting with more legends around sport, music and business on another episode of Lunch with Lee. We'll see you then. Do-